This is an ABC podcast. Hi, welcome to the Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. God, it's late in the year for me still to be saying that. Well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, I failed. I feel like it was right at the start of the year that I set out on trying to come up with a new introduction. I tell just you, gave up. Tell something. you what, o- over summer, why don't we try yep. to come up with a new representative tagline? I mean, it's... The still, problem is... Yeah. No, no, the problem is we could try to do that over summer, but us putting our heads together over summer to do that will be a disaster. <laughs> That's probably right. We'll just get nowhere yeah. and we'll end up with a 4,000-word tagline. Yeah, True and decide that's the only way we can capture fully what we want to So the first, the first five minutes of the show, effectively, are us trying to explain <laughs> what it is well, we're doing. Fi- 4,000 words in five minutes. That's, that's very good going. <laughs> and probably be several months of the show. Yeah, anyway. Um, anyway, you know what the show is, or roughly, to the extent that these things are knowable. Uh, today's an interesting show, Scott, mm. because um, in some ways, this is the show we do every week. And in other ways, uh, this is the show that we've been steadfastly refusing to do for, yeah. for months. It's true. It's actually. kind of all just culminated to this point where we just decided, well, let's just do this topic that is kind of related to so many others, but we haven't framed it in quite this way before. We haven't. And I think we're hoping that by framing it in the way that we are, by sharpening the issue to the point that it is, and by bringing up a form of wording that we've tried assiduously to avoid Not just all year, but I think for the last probably three, four years, four years by my count, we're trying to up the stakes uh, and hopefully get things to such a point that certain things that we've been wanting to say, I suppose, are maybe unavoidable. Certain things that we've avoided saying are kind of possible. And hopefully we bring a degree of clarity. I think one of the, it's so funny, you and I sort of often talk about words and the importance of retrieving a certain meaning that seems to have fallen out of fashion. One of the words that I'm surprised how much we talk about off-air is the word discrimination, which, of course, is one of the cardinal vices, I think, in modern liberal societies, and rightly so. the only vice. Yeah, quite, uh, quite possibly, or it's the vice from which all others stem. The idea being that there is one group, I suppose, that is singled out, or there are a number of groups, um, no, minorities, let's say, that are singled out for special, discriminatory, disadvantageous, deleterious treatment. Um, and yet, you know, every time I bring up the word discrimination when we're talking, you point out, well, but that's not discrimination. And, you know, discrimination, of course, originally, or classically, or in more sort of philosophical senses, simply means the proper making of distinctions, the proper drawing of lines between and around things. In some respects, what we are trying to do today is to apply a degree of discrimination to a term or to a set of practices that have maybe been walled off from proper political discussion, proper democratic debate, So much so that what used to be, I think, maybe rightly considered a virtue within democratic societies is similarly regarded as not just a vice, but maybe even as a mechanism, a mode, a form, an expression of oppression. So the word that we're talking about today, class, is... (laughs) (laughs) My name is Mr. No. um, is, Is the word civility. And it's striking to me, Willie, how many people either roll their eyes upon the use of the term or the hearing of the term or respond viscerally to it. And I think what this stems from is a misunderstanding of civility in the first place and a misapplication of civility in the second. So the misunderstanding of the word civility in the first place would have to do, say, with its common or more vernacular use, which would be to be civil is to be polite. It's to be courteous. It's to take turns. It's to behave in a way that is, uh, let's say in this instance, dispassionate or at least not overly passionate. And it's uh, essentially playing nice. Let's, Let's just put it that way. When applied then to political or democratic debate, civility means taking a degree of personality out of democratic deliberation, refusing to take the thing that we are describing or discussing 
personally, as if something really serious, as if a form of absolute value doesn't hang from it. So it's uh, raising the level of one's conversation to the more decorous. The way that it's then misapplied, so in other words, whenever somebody gets too personal in a debate or maybe nasty in a debate, then they've transgressed a particular line. They become uncivil. There's an example I think we can point to uh, in a second that might be illustrative. Um, and then the misapplication would be, okay, if you are then requiring people who have been historically oppressed and excluded from democratic deliberation, whose voices have historically counted for nothing, who have been subjected to a form of moral suffocation where they're denied access to the register in which their consent can be given and their voice can be heard, and you're requiring them to engage in debate on the terms that those who have always had privileged access to power, when you insist that they play by the same rules that those who already have power do, then you're subjecting them to a form of oppression. Because by definition, what certain forms of demand for absolute justice require is a kind of rattling, a shaking, a disrupting of the status quo. By then saying you need to appeal to justice in the terms already provided by the status quo, you are then deepening the forms of oppression or, or you're reiterating, let's say, the forms of oppression that the historically marginalized have long since suffered from. Is that, a, is that an okay description of the issues at stake? I think so, yeah. I, I would just add to that, I don't know if it, whether it adds much actually, but I would just add to that that what happens in that process is that the concept of civility becomes recast as a concept of suppression. Yeah, yeah. And resistance Good. to change. So that civility itself becomes a tool of resisting any kind of claim of the oppressed. Mm. Um, and civility, therefore, becomes a tool of the oppressor. Mm. And it's expressed almost in a deliberate way. Sorry, what, um, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, almost as though this is a strategy. Okay. So by, by beneath the veneer of a demand for politeness, or I actually want to move away from politeness. Can I, can I shift tack just a little bit? Yeah, Because one of the other ideas, I think, that stands behind both the use of and the critique of civility, as in the form that we've just explained it, is another distinction, which would be, say, the distinction that pertains from the 17th century onwards, that associates civility or civilization with rationality, progress, a kind of more enlightened or advanced position along the uh, spectrum of human development. The contrast to civility slash civilization is barbarism or barbarity, which is usually associated with passion, with irrationality, and therefore with violence. And so you have these different associations kind of accumulating around each end of the spectrum. You've got civility, civilization, rationality, dispassionate argumentation, enlightenment, uh, the use of reason, the promise of reason, and so on, versus mm -hmm. barbarism, passion, immoderation, incontinence, violence, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so again, as we often see these days, as soon as too much passion, and I would say too much passion of a particular kind, is injected into public debate, then, well, we really need to sort of do things more civilly than that. That kind of passion has no place within democratic debate. But again, I, I think the way that that particular critique is leveled isn't overly helpful because it tends to be so selectively applied. So what I thought we could do here, it's a nice way of, I think, maybe not settling accounts, but I think drawing a whole lot of issues that we've been wanting to grapple with for months or even years now, is to try to get a better handle on, well, what is, in fact, civility? What is being demanded when we demand it? What is the place of civility within democratic society? What is civility not? What are the misunderstandings, I suppose, that have accumulated around it? And under what conditions can or should civility be dispensed with? I think those are all the questions that we need to grapple with here. Are there any questions I've left out? 
No, I think that's a good starting point. Do you but, want to mount a definition? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well. Well, no, because I think it's important. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I agree. All right. Um, well, one of the, I think there's, there's a definition and then there's a description. The, one of the better definitions that I know of comes from a wonderful book by uh, the Oxford political theorist Theresa Bejan from her book, Mere Civility. And she describes civility as a conversational virtue, a conversational virtue that is meant to regulate the deliberations of free and equal citizens within a, within a democratic society. I don't mind that too much because it allows space for passion. It allows space for deeply held values. It is entirely associated with the way in which one speaks. In other words, civility is not just a form of politeness or deference or holding, say, a door open for somebody else or allowing other people to go first. It is a conversational virtue. It's, it's a form of regulation of the words that we use in the course of democratic deliberation. So if that's a serviceable definition of civility, and I think it's a pretty good one, you might want to disagree. I'm not sure it disagree. is serviceable for the current purpose. Because the objection to civility that you've or we've identified mm. already is an objection that grounds civility in power disparity mm -hmm. and the preservation of those disparities. Read the definition again. So civility, I'm not actually reading. I'm trying to do it from memory. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. I'm trying to impress you at that point, Willie. Well, Does that impress you in any way? I'm, I'm very impressed. Okay, okay. Well, civility yeah. from memory is a conversational virtue that's meant to regulate the exchange, the free, the exchange between free and equal citizens within a democratic right. community. Free and equal. Yeah. That's precisely that's right. the site of contestation. That's right. Okay. So I'm not, how does it get you anywhere? Because if the charge goes... But we're not talking about free and equal. Hmm. We're talking about unfree and unequal, hmm, or at the right. very least, free and unequal. Then civility has no place. Hmm. So now what? Okay. So let's just, let's try to go a little bit further then. Okay. Our second description, which I think gives us a little bit more to work with. This isn't quite a definition, but it is a description of, let's call it the habits or the dispositions that, that are knotted together under the idea of civility. It comes from someone we've had on this program, a wonderful political theorist from Vanderbilt University, Robert Talese. Um, he describes civility as kind of a knotting, a bundle of virtues or dispositions, one of which is public-mindedness. In other words, the primary disposition isn't to one's partisan advantage, but rather to what is good for the democratic society as a whole. Mm -hmm. Civility also reflects the virtue of reciprocity. In other words, there is something of exchange between people, and it's a mode of speaking in which one expects, one speaks in such a way that one expects to be answered, that one expects a hearing and one promises to then give a hearing in turn. I think that idea of reciprocity is really, really important. And then the final one is transparency. Now, by transparency, I suspect he means something like uh, John Rawls's criteria or regulative rule of public reason. In other words, you engage in public conversation in such a way that you expect your conversation to be intelligible to those that don't agree with you. Mm. You express it in such a way that it is a demand that they can understand and a demand to which they can respond, which I think would mean something like you cross over the line demarcated by civility when you make a demand that another side constitutionally, existentially, cannot accept and cannot understand, like, like accepting the conditions of their own extinction or, or accepting the conditions of their own exclusion from democratic society or, or sketching out a vision of the future from which they are constitutionally, existentially, necessarily excluded. So I think that, def, that description of public-mindedness, not just partisan advantage, reciprocity, mm -hmm. Uh, answerability, let's put it that way, and transparency, uh, expressing your convictions in such a way that it stands, let's say, a reasonable chance of being persuasive. Um, I think there's something there that gets us a little bit closer to the truth. What do yeah, you think? That, that's much more workable, I think. And does, I, I always feel torn on these things, that sort of, you know, Rawlsian sort of formulation, because 
on the one hand, it seems unavoidably true that in especially increasingly diverse and complex societies, the only forms of public reasoning or public argument that work as being admissible are those to which all kinds of diverse people can assent, right? So the, there have to be forms of discourse or forms of, of reason that are not um, exclusive to you, that you can access irrespective of our often mm. metaphysical differences or mm. differences in meta narrative. On the other hand, there is a certain thing that happens there, right, which is that we sort of brush away the existence of meta narratives in toto mm. so that claims can never be actually fully expressed. Yeah, nicely said. And in the end, what really happens is a particular kind of meta narrative or an assertion of the absence of a meta narrative becomes the meta narrative that you have to yield to mm. in order to appeal publicly. I I don't know that there is a solution to that riddle. I think um, maybe that's insoluble, especially in hyper-complex societies like ours and especially in societies that are liberal or post-liberal or post-modern or whatever descriptor you want to use, whereby meta narratives have just been dissolved over and over and over again to the point where to assert one is simply to become incomprehensible. There, there are probably others and certainly were other societies where that wouldn't have been the case, but they're probably not ours. Mm. See, so, Walid, I'm, I'm not sure that, that the problem is indissoluble. Because I think one of the things, if we can put Robert Talese's kind of last two elements of that description together, reciprocity and transparency, I think one of the things we often assume when it comes to kind of the Rawlsian critique of democratic deliberation is that one person has one shot and that one shot is one way. So I have a single moment uh, in which to give a unidirectional explanation in terms of widely acceptable, uncontroversial categories that really any sane or, or uh, moderately rational person would be able to accept. And then it's up to you to uh, understand that and to try to find some way of accommodating yourself within it. Whereas, in fact, what often happens, even within, say, radically incommensurable moral visions of human life or of the nature of global justice, is that there tends to be not so much, this is what I'm trying to persuade you with, do you accept it or not? But instead, this is the way that I see the world. According to the values that I hold, according to the beliefs that I have, according to uh, what matters to me most in human life and in our life together, this is the light that that, share, that, that sheds upon our life together and upon the possibilities of a common future. What does that illuminate for you? Yeah, but I just don't think that's actually what happens, yeah, especially but... on thorny. Like, so take an issue like uh, euthanasia. Mm. See, this reminds me a bit of the conversation we had where we were kind of unpacking the mechanics of the abortion debate. Yeah. Right. So there's at the heart of that, there's something like the euthanasia debate, are a whole series of metaphysical and, and metanarrative commitments about the meaning of life. Mm, that's right. Right. If what you're going to say is civility requires us to articulate our position with respect to an issue such that those who don't share those deeper um, assumptions can nonetheless still apprehend and, and access it, then what you're actually asking is for the full force of a particular argument not to find expression because the disagreement is so deep. And so you become incapable really of having a discussion about the real site of disagreement here. Because democracies, secular democracies, very diverse democracies, can't have a conversation about the meaning of life. Hmm. We just can't do it. And you see this pop up in, like, the way our politics works generally. It's becoming increasingly managerialist, um, increasingly technocratic. Uh, we send things off to commissions to come up with reports to determine what, you know, the, the mathematically precise policy prescription should be in a particular case. When the Productivity Commission says something, for example, that's kind of seen as like a judgment <laughs> of, a, of a court. And then if, you, if a government ignores that, it's perfectly legitimate for a jerk like me interviewing a minister to say, well, the Productivity Commission said X, why did you reject that? You know, 
what would be much harder would be for a politician to respond to that and say, yeah, but what's life all about, Waleed? Mm. Right? That just wouldn't work. Mm. <laughs> so, so we can't have those sorts of conversations. So, so we end up, I think, even with that model of civility, we, we end up in a situation where the, the conversation must be circumscribed, just not necessarily in ways that we frequently acknowledge. Right? And we tend to acknowledge the, the, the stifling nature of civility only when we feel that we're the ones being stifled. That, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's just the nature of it. That said, I, I didn't want to go too far down this road because all, all I'm really saying there is that that seems to be, it seems to me, an insoluble riddle of contemporary society. And that doesn't mean that we then toss out the very notion of civility. I do like the idea, though, of at the heart of civility, something that that understands our interlocutors as people with whom we share a future, whether we like it or not. Mm. And that nonetheless has to try to make an appeal to them on terms that are intelligible to them. Mm. I'm attracted to the idea of you you breach the rules of civility where you make a demand that requires someone's extinguishment or erasure. But I'm nervous as I say that because I find that increasingly that is the field on which politics is played, Yeah, is to allege erasure or extinguishment as a way of kind of heightening the stakes. Mm-hmm. We can, I think that's right. Right, even when it doesn't actually necessarily need to be that way. And in an age of identity proliferation, erasure becomes almost a, a daily occurrence, right? Because you're f- forever confronted with a new identity claim. And then now you're having a conversation that's entirely... On, I mean, so let's take an example of an argument that I see play out a little bit, right, amongst advocates within, what do they call it now, probably neurodivergence or neurodiversity, mm. right, which often means people on the autism spectrum, right, and I have some experience with this with family and so on. Um, the argument goes that the very notion of civility is one that erases, say, autistic people mm-hmm. because it imposes on them obligations of masking, etc., that cause all kinds of mental anguish and all kinds of mental ill health and lead to high suicide rates. Now, I think there are factual assertions at almost every stage of that narrative that you could question, but you can see the shape of the narrative, Mm. right? And what's interesting about the claim is, or where I think, I think that claim falls down in a lot of ways, but one of the places I think it falls down is that really what's being asked for on behalf of those people, or sorry, what those people are asking for is not the abandonment of civility, they actually want civility towards themselves, mm-hmm. right? The, the total abandonment of civility would not be a world they would want to live in either. That's right. Right. What they're asking for, I think, is some kind of recognition of the difficulties of navigating life, you know, when you're on the spectrum or whatever. And that's actually a different sort of a claim. But you see how it gets put or transposed into a kind of existential key, And when that happens, and then you say, well, civility, therefore, is oppressive, or you're being uncivil because you're demanding my erasure, you now create a situation where all the incentives, this is what keeps happening in our politics, all the incentives are to raise the stakes to an existential level such that they become insoluble and they have to retreat simply to trench warfare. And so while I'm attracted to the way you framed it there, I see that in practice the way that all that plays out might be really to... I don't know, just re-articulate or return us to the problem rather than solve it. Mm, mm. Look, I, I, think that's, I think that's probably right. I think that's very, very well put. Before we bring in our guest, and I'm just really excited that we move on to the next stage of the argument, I, I would just say I think one of the things that many abstract conversations surrounding civility miss is, let's just put it this way, our real-life experience of those moments in which we voluntarily restrain ourselves in order to preserve something that we regard as being of greater value or of greatest value. So anybody who has had any significant relationship, let's call it either a deep friendship or let's call it a marriage, has experienced that moment of disagreement in which I could, let's say, quote unquote, win this particular disagreement. I could say something or pull a trump card that would leave me victorious. <laughs> yeah, but at the at the cost of long term damage. Exactly. To, yes, uh, but then uh, what of the do you conditions do with the- of that of that relationship itself? In other words, at certain moments, 
this thing need not be one or this thing need not be one now yeah, for the sake of the priority. preservation of the conditions of that ongoing relationship. Yeah, but the problem is the, the response to that analogy is to say, yes, but it will always be me who doesn't win, who's being asked not to win mm-hmm. for the sake of preserving mm-hmm. what I regard as an oppressive structure. Mm, that's true. That's the way the argument goes. I'm not wholly persuaded by that argument. No, I'm not either. Because I think it's so promiscuously used. But once you structure the argument in that way, I'm not sure you really can get around it by making further appeals to civility, can you? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. All right, well, we're in a hole. We (laughs) probably need a guest to dig us out of it, don't we? And our guest, it just so happens to possess a name that I've already dropped in this conversation. We had him on the show a few weeks back. We indicated in that show that there was some unfinished business, and so we were honor-bound, I think, to have him back and to help us out. Robert Talese is the W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. He is, I think, one of our very finest democratic theorists. He's the author of a particularly good book on this topic called Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe the Other Side. Robert, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to be talking to you both again. So, so let's just pick up on this issue of reciprocity, because okay. uh, I mean, on on another occasion, you've described uh, civility as a as a uh, reciprocal public virtue. It's not. I'm not entirely sure about the way that we can wholly separate between the individual virtue demanded by civility and the reciprocal public dimension of it. But what it seems to me you mean by reciprocal public virtue is that it's one of those rules of the game that everybody has to buy into in order for it to work. And when one side stops honoring that particular commitment, then the other side is no longer bound or at least bound in the same way to honor that commitment. So that just raises for me, I guess, the immediate question, at what point in the life of a democracy does the obligation for civility either no longer apply or no longer apply to the same degree? Yeah, that's the that's the big question, right? Uh, what are the what are the limits of of the duty? Insofar as uh, there is a duty to engage political differences uh, in a way that is um, bound by these these norms. Um, now, I, I you know I don't think that the most useful way of doing this kind of philosophy where we're trying to get clear on a concept and think about the, the the contours of it i'm not sure that it's possible or i don't doesn't seem to me to be fruitful to start with the hard cases we need to get to the hard cases mm. that's that's for sure um but sometimes what makes the hard cases hard <laughs> um is that there is an implicit underlying concept that we haven't yet fully mined. That is that when, if I were to give the answer to the question, I'm like, well, it's certainly not a duty of civility to um, to be nice to Nazis, right? <laughs> I could give it, mm. yeah, I could start going through cases where it looks to me like uh, whatever the requirements of civility might be, they're um, either eliminated entirely or, or very, very severely muted. But, and I think that that's an intuitive case, that people who are overtly arguing for radically racist genocidal policies are not people to whom a good democratic citizen owes anything um, or certainly doesn't owe much, might not owe anything at all. Um, but I think that it it might be better if you start, I think, okay, that's the intuition ultimately we want to um, account for. The, the Some of the hard cases, some of the uh, obvious beyond the pale cases, that's part of what we want to account for. But um, don't we need to um, fill in the concept a little bit more before mm. we can expect the, the nascent sense of things uh, to do the heavy lifting? That seems it seems that we get to do the heavy lifting after we've spent some time thinking about the more normal cases. Does that seem right? Yeah, yeah, entirely correct. And <laughs> but but I, uh, I I guess my immediate question back to you is: it surely is one of the forms of the violation of the norms of civility that we have come so assiduously to describe our opponents in ways. So just to take the example that Walid gave before about the abortion debate. Right. We we don't or describe the euthanasia debate, or the yeah. oh, sorry sorry the euthanasia debate. We we don't describe our opponents as those who, 
because of their firsthand intimate experience with appalling family tragedies or with the, uh, the experience of one's loved one's um, uh, intense uh, pain at the very end of their life and the loss of their dignity, uh, therefore advocating something that would seem to them to be a merciful legislative change. And then on the other side, instead of those who have the preservation of human life, the maintenance of human dignity to the very end, and a fear that certain forms of, say, convenience or even the weakening of our social and familial bonds have reached the point that certain people might feel, say, compelled to accelerate the end of their life so they need not be a burden on their children or family. I mean, those are, or, I think, or even are, a belief that life is dignified per se. Yes. And so that it can't be lost merely in a process of even extreme suffering. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they seem to be fairly reasonable, intelligible, understandable ways. But when we reach this point of the debate, it's always you're uh, callous and insensitive. You've adopted a medieval conception of life. You couldn't care less about human suffering. Or on the other side, this is the legislation of death squads, the perversion of the medical profession. It's dragooning doctors into taking the lives of the patients that they've been uh, sworn to defend. In other words, it's one of the forms, surely, of our violation of the norms of civility that we've come to describe our opponents in terms that would say, I owe no duty of answerability to you whatsoever. You pose a, an existential threat to things that I care deeply, deeply about and that any reasonable or rational civilized person would care about. And that the way that, I mean, this is not even just our postmodern media culture with the internet, but the way our media culture has worked for a long time is the, the more you can express your argument in those terms, yeah, the better right. for that's you, right? right? So right. if you can say about someone's tax policy, they want to take this country back 100 years or whatever. That, that, that's, that a that's a headline. That's a standard way <laughs> of mounting your argument. And so the, all the incentives are there to frame it in precisely those kinds of... In fact, if you can't, you're probably not in the game. <laughs> Right. right. So th this is where I think the, the, the civility conversation is important, but the it, it I, like I totally take the point you're making, Robert, about don't start with the hard cases. The observation I'm making is, yes, but we're in a mode where everything is designed to become a hard case. Right. And then what? And what's but part of what's lamentable about that is that we haven't yet delineated with enough um, detail and care what exactly the requirement of civility demands of us. Mm. So part of, you know, from what perspective do we see the media tendencies and incentives, actually? I think Walid is right that this is a, this is a, these are strategic <laughs> uh, maneuvers um, to cast everything as a, as an issue of existential erasure, to cast everything as an issue of, um, you know, unless, it, unless our side prevails, the country is doomed. Mm -hmm. These are, I think, criticizable tendencies only from a perspective of a more detailed uh, picture of what proper democratic disagreement looks like. Mm. And part of that depiction, I would argue, has to involve a concept, a concept like civility. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I, I appreciate all the things uh, that were said earlier about the, the difficult associations and connotations that the word has and the way that it becomes wielded strategically as a device of exclusion and silencing. I, I agree with all of those uh, critiques of civility as a operative concept. But that doesn't mean that there isn't available to us a philosophically nuanced enough conception of the concept to, to establish some norms about what properly democratic disagreement looks like mm -hmm. uh, that, we, that we could um, satisfy independently of the way that once you theorize uh, a norm in political discourse, you inevitably make it a site of contestation, usually uh, among people who have different strategic ends in wielding it. I think that part's so, inevitable. Sure. Yeah, that's probably right. But bef yeah. before I ask Scott to define this, and he quoted you, now you're here. <laughs> so <laughs> why, don't, why don't you put the flesh on the bones? How, how would you describe or delineate the essence of this concept. I wasn't trying to ventriloquize you before, by the way, Robert. I, I, I was actually trying to set the stage. I was priming the spotlight. 
It's uh, I appreciate it, and, and your your encapsulation was totally fine with me. So, uh, so all that's good. Um, which, by the way, you know, we're ahead of the game when somebody else can describe a philosopher's view in a way that he says, "Oh yeah, that was fine. That's 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 pretty rare." So, uh, <laughs> who knows? Um, so look, here's why, why. Let me start by saying why I think we need some such concept as civility. Um, and the story here, I think, is 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 pretty straightforward. I, I hope not too controversial. I want to say first that um, a democratic society is an aspiration for a certain kind of social order. It's an aspiration that undoubtedly uh, in modern societies is unfulfilled, in some ways um, uh, tragically unfulfilled because the means of fulfilling the aspiration in, in certain uh, elements in the United States, for example, are easily accessed and we just don't have the will. Um, so I want to say that democracy is the aspiration for a certain kind of social order, the aspiration for a society of self-governing political equals. That's consistent with saying that in actual democratic societies, uh, we fall well short. Part of why I think it's important to start at that high altitude of uh, abstraction and and uh, uh, what philosophers still call ideal theory is to say, well, look, there's a, a moral puzzle about the aspiration of democracy. Uh, even before we get to diagnosing the ways in which actually existing democracies fall short and seem resolutely committed to falling short, there's a there's a purely conceptual puzzle about how it's possible for there to be politics, let alone democratic politics, for there to be politics among equals. Because it looks as if, I hope this is not too controversial, politics always involves the exercises of coercive power mm. among individuals who, in the democratic image, are hypothesized to be equals. It looks like exercises of coercive power are incompatible with a due recognition of equality. It looks like exercising coercive power is always a matter of bossing. And bossing looks incom incompatible, inconsistent with a due recognition of others' equality. Now, democracy is the philosophical hypothesis that you can square the circle by way of some account, and you know, we could get deeply into this if we want. This is, you know, uh, careers are made on on trying to answer this kind of question in philosophy, right? By some arrangement where each person who winds up being subject to coercive the coercive power of the state has an equal say, whatever that means. That might just mean equal input. It might mean equality in some more robust sense in saying, uh, has an equal say in determining how or in what direction the power is wielded. One can maintain one's status as an equal, despite the fact that one is also subject to a, a, a kind of um, coercive power. Now, it strikes me that if some philosophically detailed version of that very broad story of the philosophical problem that democracy is supposed to solve. Uh, some version of that philosophical answer to that problem is right. And I think there is at least one that is right. Then it becomes very important to be able to preserve among one's fellow citizens the social conditions under which, even when they feel that they are being forced to do what they don't want to do because the election went the wrong way in, in their judgment. We have to preserve the conditions under which they can remain or retain their status as equals by retaining their status as critics of the standing decision. And it seems to me that there's a, let me introduce a distinction between being a social critic and a social complainer. <laughs> uh, I think that um, the way that we preserve the way that we preserve our equality, uh, even when we're on the losing side of a democratic decision, is by engaging our critical powers and uh, engaging in social critique. But what's necessary for social critique is that I have as a as a citizen access to the reasons, the rationale, 
the considerations that led so many of my fellow citizens to support a policy that I think is horrid or at least suboptimal given the other options. And I think civility is what's what the concept of civility is meant to do is to establish some norms of political disagreement so that while we are disagreeing, we are also supplying uh, our fellow citizens with the tools necessary to be critics of the decision should the decision go in a way that they see as criticizable. And part of what that means is some version, uh, as we were talking, uh, as you guys were talking a moment ago, some version of the Rawlsian constraint that the reasons have to be publicly accessible. Otherwise, there's an election or some other democratic process of collective decision making. I don't like the decision. What avenues are open to me? Well, if I can't access it, reasons or a rationale that is intelligible to me qua citizen, then I can't really be a critic. I'm just a complainer. I'm just somebody who says, I don't like it. And somebody says, why? My answer has to be, I can't say why, because I can't even articulate what was going through the minds of the people who supported this thing, because the re what they offer as reasons don't strike me as reasons at all. Um, that looks like it's uh, both philosophically and politically a form of powerlessness. So let me end with just this one last move. I think we need such some such concept of civility in order to make a lot of the kinds of critiques that are often launched against, I think, uncareful concepts of civility. A lot of the standing critiques of the concept of civility, I think, are intelligible as critiques only by implicit reference to some more robust and precise conception of civility. Hmm. I think Scott's ready to go, like a coiled spring. <laughs> okay. uh, we'll see. Robert, that was magnificent. I mean, sorry, I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm not just flattering. I am flattering, but I'm not just flattering. I appreciate that. There is, there is nothing that you said then that I don't subscribe to wholeheartedly. Uh, and it's one of the reasons, I think, why I'm not wholly persuaded with the sheer separation between civility and certain forms of the regulation of speech. Um, right. I'm not saying it's just courtesy. I'm not saying it's just politeness. But there is and there can be a kind of, let's call it decorousness of speech that is appropriate within a democracy. Um, here's, here's my question. The great moral philosopher Cicela Bach in her, it seems to me, incomparable book on lying. There's a little footnote. Right. It is the greatest footnote ever written, it seems to me. Really? <laughs> Emmanuel Kant had a few, but this one is cracking. She drops in a footnote, possibly the most important line in the entire book, which is, whatever matters most in human relations in life, trust is the atmosphere in which it thrives. I think there's something crucial in so many respects to that. What right. you neglected, uh, and I have no doubt you have an answer to it, which is why I really want to put it to you. Uh, a person may feel that they don't have access to the real reasons why someone might be uh, articulating or might have made a, say, electoral decision the way that they did, voted the way that they did, supported a policy as they did. Mm -hmm. I think one of, the, one of the forms or one of the expressions of the extent to which distrust has become pervasive in our modern democratic cultures is that we're now at the point where even if the opposing side does give a rationale that seems reasonable, that seems defensible, that seems prudent or constructive or inclusive or bipartisan or open-handed. We've gotten to the point where I don't even accept, I'm, I'm not saying I do, but one on this side of the, of the <laughs> disagreement, I don't accept that that seemingly reasonable rationale you've just given is on face value the reason that motivates you. In other words, this is a form of reasonable makeup, and beneath right. it is the real agenda, which is, and right. then one can go through all the things we Now, it seems to me that that kind of radical distrust, I don't even accept the words that you give, and I have access to what is really behind them, that then becomes a form of radical and radicalizing distrust 
that means that even where there is the appearance of civility, the underlying conditions that make civility possible have already eroded. Yeah, and that's certainly a possibility. Now, note, you know, there's already built into the kind of model of civility that I would ultimately advocate for um, the seed of this worry. Because once you recognize that you need some such concept as civility, how are we going to manage, how are we going to conduct ourselves when we're disagreeing about really important things, given that the society, all of our democratic societies are falling short in really tragic, t terrible ways at justice. We need to do justice. We have, you know, we have to conduct ourselves uh, when we disagree uh, in certain ways in order to further the democratic doing of justice. Um, but once you introduce into the concept of civility some such Rawlsian thought that there is a special vocabulary for political contestation that aims to make the reasons one might have for one's advocacy accessible and intelligible, uh, viewable by one's opponents so that contestation has a currency. Um, once you introduce that kind of thought, I think you set up the kind of problem, Scott, that you were just mentioning, the sincerity problem. Mm. It's like, oh, the public reasons, the official right. reasons. Mm -hmm are not the actually motivating reasons. They're, yeah, they're, because, what's because really that's going what's on demanded, here, right? We're demanding right. that you actually come up with an argument that's not really your argument. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly it. And so the worry is that, and you know, critics of critics of views like mine and broadly Rawlsian views, I, I guess I count my view as similar as Rawlsian in the very broad sense, although I'm not a Rawlsian, um, Views of this kind, you know, get charged by saying that they require citizens to be insincere with one another and to pick up on on the Bach case. Yeah, that kind of insincerity is one of the sources uh, when it's iterated right? is one of the sources of of distrust. And so say, I know that you're you say you're advocating this policy for reasons X, Y and Z. I also know that if what was actually motivating the advocacy were reasons A, B, and C, you wouldn't announce those. So I can attack uh, X, Y, and Z reasons all day long and still not move you in the least from the position that I'm critiquing. That is a deep worry. And I, you know, this is one of the frustrating but also nice parts about political philosophy, political theory. There is no view that doesn't solve. There's no view that solves all the problems, <laughs> right? Every view is going to have to scratch its head at some point and say, yeah, the insincerity uh, objection to views of the duty of civility that involves some such distinction between public and non-public reasons, that's a head scratcher. And under contemporary democratic conditions, that is under the conditions that we're actually living, it might even be the case that a theory that rests on that kind of distinction uh, is doomed because the the nudges we are because we are already so uh, heavily disposed to distrust those who we see as our partisan our partisan foes. Although here's the next thought: it's like yeah, that can be seen as a lamentable state of our democratic politics only from the more idealizing mm. ideas. <laughs> about what a well-functioning democracy uh, needs to look like in cases where there's, you know, vehement disagreement about what justice requires. I mean, another way of looking at it is to try to imagine the world you're left with in the alternative, right? So, right. yeah, you can identify these problems with civility, the sincerity problem among them, uh, and perhaps the mistrust that flows from that. But the thing that I think critics of civility don't often reckon with is how the world would look better without it. Right. So, okay, let, let, let's assume we're going to say, all right, no longer should you feel in any way compelled to put your argument in a in terms that's accessible to someone who doesn't agree with you. Okay, so now you walk down that path. What, what happens? <laughs> yeah. What's the democratic dividend of that exactly? Um, this idea that, for example, if we were to just shed ourselves of any kind of constraints in the way that we engage in public exchange, that somehow justice would prevail, that somehow justice would win. Just seems to me a wildly untested assumption 
a, a sort of article of faith that has so little to commend it. There's, there's no, like I can see how that might lead you in the end to a kind of open conflict, a kind of war situation, and then you determine a winner that way. But that's not what's being argued for here. So right. I think sometimes you can run arguments that, well, this is all a structure of oppression, et cetera, but without explaining how any alternative case of affairs that you would usher in would be any less oppressive. Um, it might even be counterproductive to what's going on. But the the burden of proof never seems to fall on the critic in that regard. <laughs> uh, I think that that's right. One further um, feature of this you know, when you do see political theorists criticizing civility or, you know, deliberativeness in the deliberative democracy picture, you know, we're talking about reasons and we're talking about mm. polite conversation. It sounds like a lot of old white guys around a, a table, you know, um, uh, when you hear those kinds of critiques of uh, civility or deliberation or the ideal of deliberation um, from theorists who do give some description of some alternative norm. Uh, it's often not clear to me, at least, that the alternative norms are not also subject to the very same <laughs> kinds of worries. Mm. Iris Young, for example, uh, some listeners and maybe you both might be aware of, you know, sort of has this this critique of deliberation as you know driven by a norm of consensus, which is a norm of civility, and that you know empowers people who are already disproportionately powerful, and it contributes to the disadvantage and ultimately the silencing of people who have less power, and. And she proposes modes of democratic communication that sound good to me, by the way, right? You know, greeting and narrative and, you know, various kinds of um, communicative acts that she argues should count as democratic uh, exercises uh, in communication that don't at least in, in their first instance look like their contributions to the deliberative process of sharing mm. reasons and finding out why other people are advocating the way that they're advocating. Um, but it, yeah, I remember reading the, the article when it first came out uh, a couple decades ago. I remember thinking, like, storytelling doesn't look to me like it's necessarily free. <laughs> mm. It's not it's not invulnerable to these same dynamics. Some people are better storytellers. They're better at weaving a narrative. Mm. I'm likely mm. to bet that there are sites of social advantage that are positively correlated with having those skills. <laughs> yeah, so it, or, or, or indeed the, right. the reception of those stories yes. is going to be dependent exactly. on all kinds of social dynamics in which power will be encoded. Uh, yeah, but the point that you make is is well made. Um, sadly, we're out of time for you to continue making more of them, Robert, so we'll have to get you on again <laughs> at some point. Part three. Uh, Part yeah. three is coming up. <laughs> <laughs> the Talese trilogy, out now. Um, Robert Talese is W. Alton Jones, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University, our guest for this week's edition of The Mind Tour. Robert, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to talking again. That's it for The Minefield for now. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.